this point, we, for a couple of Sundays now, in the evening lessons at least, have been giving some thought to the book of Nahum in the Old Testament. And in fact, this evening we come to the third installment in that series of lessons, Nahum, uh, session, edition number three, having to do with the cause for Nineveh's destruction. As we begin that lesson, perhaps a brief uh, moment of review or at least rehearsal to bring us to the point where we are this evening, for we have, in fact, noticed many things about the book of Nahum, not the least of which, in fact, are these. It is one of the twelve minor prophets of the Old Testament, but not only that. It, in fact, is the sequel to the book of Jonah, have occurring about 130 years or so after the events of that book, and whereas the city of Nineveh was spared in the days of Jonah, it was not spared this time. Because, as we shall see this evening, the events had become such that God had given the decree for her destruction, had given the decree for, in fact, her doom and her ruin, because she had opposed him. She had lived valiantly in opposition to him, and in fact, in so doing, she had brought about her own ruin and her own destruction. In addition to those matters, we did learn in her opening lesson that this very destruction of Nineveh is a telltale matter bringing to our mind the sovereignty of God. God rules in the kingdoms of men. Daniel 4.37, Daniel 4.25. And in that sovereign power of his reigning majesty over all empires of men, we learn that God's will shall be accomplished. Furthermore, we noticed in the second lesson from chapter 2 of this book that the destruction of Nineveh was to be complete. God, in fact, reigned down in power and might the oracles of destruction through the prophet Nahum, and it was not to be excused. It was not to be set aside. Furthermore, one final lesson, taken from verses 7 and 8 of Nahum 2, was the interesting play on words. Whereas Nineveh was known for its confidence, its assurance, its thinking that no one is able to defeat me, God, in rather plain language, said to the Huzzab, those who were known to be confident, those who with an air of arrogance, in fact, defied others to come against them, God said, I will bring you down, and that he, in fact, would do. With those matters as somewhat of an introductory set of thoughts, tonight we come to the closing chapter of this three-chapter book, Nahum 3, and in fact, in this chapter, we see the causes of this destruction. Why was it that they deserved this destruction? Tonight, let us give some attention and some thinking to those matters. As we do so, I'm convinced that we will, in fact, be led to reflect somewhat on our current land in which you and I are blessed to live and the state of affairs that, in fact, are existed even till this day for us. With those matters said, let's present a few ideas, a few notes that I have entitled, Taste Your Own Medicine. One of the things that we had hinted at from the second chapter of this book, especially in relation to the character verses 8 and 9 of Nahum 2, was a passing reference to a portion of Egypt. I entitle that again, Taste Your Own Medicine. Nineveh, as representative of the Assyrian Empire, was known for its cruelty, was known for its ruthlessness, was known for the savage manner and somewhat inhumane treatment that it poured upon various places when it conquered them, when it subjugated the peoples of those areas. Here we find a rather amazing set of ideas in this very passage. For God rather directly said to them, what you did to the place called No in Egypt, 
And that, by the way, was an ancient way of referring to the city of Thebes. And thus, I made reference to some of the things concerning that city. He said, what you, Assyria, did to that city of Thebes, you will now have done to you. That's a rather sobering set of ideas, isn't it? For after all, not many years in the past, Assyria, in rather great might, had had the audacity, because she could, to actually invade a portion of Egypt and, in fact, greatly destroy that city known as Thebes. That ancient city, in fact, was a place where the pharaohs often dwelled for a portion of the year. It was known for its royalty. It was known for the character of its might being situated on both sides of the Nile River. And yet, the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh as its capital, actually went and destroyed Thebes, made a great onslaught against it. And in so doing, God here says, what you did to them will now be done to you. That, I would submit to you, challenges each of us to think very mightily and also rather critically about a couple of lessons and a couple of quick principles not the least of which is that opening one that I've listed there for your consideration. Isn't it amazing that, in effect, God said to Nineveh, what you have sowed, you will now reap. Interesting, isn't it, how often the Bible is certain to remind us of the truth of that statement. What a person sows is that same matter which, in fact, that person shall reap. In Hosea 8-7, another one of the minor prophets, in fact, in the opening of the Minor Prophets, through that prophet Hosea, God, in fact, said, You have sown to the whirlwind. Thus, in fact, you shall reap the same. They, indeed, that have sown to the whirlwind shall reap that very matter. It is inevitable, isn't it, that one reaps what one sows. When they, in that day and time, sowed to the things that were less than ideal, sowed to that which was apart and removed from the things of God, it is that to which they would refer in terms of what they would reap. Those who sow to the wind shall reap the whirlwind. In the New Testament, what is it that Paul affirmed for us to consider? Do we not remember in Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8, that on that occasion Paul was said, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Be it in the physical realm, the temporal realm, if you please, or the spiritual one, it is an inevitable fact of the way that God has orchestrated His universe that one will always reap that which He sows. When you and I sow crops in the garden, we're well aware of the fact that we shall reap the same kind of seed that we sow in the spiritual realm as well. We are well aware of the fact that we shall reap that which we have sown. It's perhaps often been noted in somewhat as cliche, I suppose, but there are references to the wild oats that one is so often known to sow, perhaps in the earlier days and in sometimes even the later days of one's life. It, in fact, never does any good to sow one's wild oats on Saturday night and pray for a crop failure on Sunday morning. It doesn't work that way, does it? The chickens do come home to roost. When you and I sow the seeds of lying, deception, deceit, and the other matters of sinfulness in our life, we should, in fact, appreciate the fact that those seeds will germinate. They will grow into rottenness, and they will grow into dishonesty, and they will grow into the other things that cause us to be far less than what God would wish us to be. 
these people in the days of Nahum, we learn very quickly that God in the physical realm said to them, what you've sown, you're about to reap. Isn't it amazing that sometimes when you and I sow various things in life, we are so glad when that seed that was good brings forth the fruit that's good. But we should also understand that in those moments of weakness, and in those moments when we allow Satan too much control, and we do that which we no doubt will regret, we should understand the seeds that are sown will in fact bring forth. How sorrowful it'll be for the sorry crop that is in fact the case before us. These matters of Nineveh are about to understand that very matter, aren't they? Furthermore, we see a second lesson. The matter of the golden rule enunciated so clearly by our Savior centuries after this. But we notice even one of the minor prophets had hinted at something like it. In Micah 6, verse number 8, we will recall that minor prophet also affirmed, What doth the Lord require of thee, O man, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? That threefold approach to righteousness and appropriateness before God we notice that these people in Nineveh had rejected the commandments and oracles of the truth. And are that, does that not lead us to notice the Lord's famous statement, that golden rule in Matthew 7? In verse 12 of that chapter, we learn so majestically, but yet so pointedly, that truth that rings so loudly even to this day, that golden rule in which we learn, take heed for whatsoever thou doest, do that, in fact, as you would have men to do unto you. Not turning and doing that which they have done to you, but rather, do that which you wish that they would have done to you. I wonder how often afterward Nineveh might have wished that things had been different. Might have wished that they could have received some mercy when, in fact, they received that greatness of the doom and destruction that was now about them. They, again, had so often acted inhumanely, harshly toward others, and now they would receive the same from these nations that would be their conquerors. In terms of history, when this destruction did come about, and notice it would not be very many years, given that Nahum wrote this book between 615 and 610 B.C., we will recall that the Babylonians, as well as, in part, the early seeds of the Medes and Persians came against the Assyrians, came against this city of Nineveh, and in about 607 B.C., it was destroyed. That means we're not even a decade later until we see the destruction of this place. Indeed, we notice again that what they would have brought toward others has now certainly been brought to them. But let's look furthermore and see what else in this same chapter we might well appreciate and learn. For just as surely as this destruction seems certain, why did it come about? Does the prophet list any details and specifics about why God was against them? What had they done? What had been their lifestyle? In what way had they brought this destruction from the character of heaven upon them? I might invite you to turn with me to chapter number 3. First of all, in verse 5, we notice God says, Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts. Again, the question, why was God against them? What had they done to invite his wrath? What had they done to encourage his rebellion toward them? Let us notice a few of the verses in the third chapter of this book, beginning in verse number 1. In verse 1, we read this rather powerful woe. 
Woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. The prey departeth not. Immediately we learn two of the characteristics of Nineveh. First of all, in verse number one of this chapter, it was a city full of lies and robbery. Somewhat is a continuation in that regard to the lesson this morning in which we looked at lying and deception and dishonesty. We notice here is exhibit A of the Old Testament era. A city that in fact was known in this passage for its lying. And notice it was well, that was one of those reasons for which God was against this city. It held up the hands of untruth. It encouraged dishonesty rather than being a city appreciative of the truth and appreciative of that which God would honor and have respect for. Any nation that has a disdain for truth should be well aware that their doom is not far into the future. Any nation that has a disdain for that which is honorable, a disdain for that which is recognized as truthful, is skating in thin ice, isn't it? Here was case in point. Though God in His richness and in His mercy had spared them somewhat over a century earlier, the days of their having a tender heart, open to respond in honesty to the teachings of God, that had now passed. They were known for their robbery, known for their lying, known for their encouragement of that which was less than truth. Let us notice in passing that that word that the King James has as robbery actually in the Hebrew means to plunder. They were known for their savagery and their plundering of other peoples who they were unwilling to allow them to even have a respect for the nature of humanity and the way in which a person should be able to live. Assyria, in fact, was known for that which was just the opposite. Again, to reiterate that any nation, be it Nineveh or otherwise, that in fact stoops to living like that should be well aware that they are well on the way to their ruin, well on the way to their destruction. Those matters only challenge us to appreciate perhaps another thing from that same passage. What else was the city known for? Isn't it interesting that in our land, perhaps each of the 50 states is more known for some things than others. In regard to Tennessee, I wonder what the state's known for. I have a sense and a bit of a fear that maybe as much as anything else, maybe it's for what happens in Lynchburg. I hope that's not true, but anyway, we notice that one of the things that Nineveh was known for, the opening woe of verse 1, the bloody city. In the Hebrew, that literally reads, Woe to the city of blood. It was known as a city that shed blood. A city that in fact brought forth the blood of the innocent. When they would subjugate and conquer nations, though those folks were innocent in that regard, they wouldn't be satisfied with merely conquering them. They in fact had to go further and perhaps to slaughter them needlessly, to take their lives and to treat them in ways that are inhumane. Woe to the bloody city. The nature of blood that seemed so frequent in that land was the very thing for which you might note the woe was cast upon them. And if you'll notice, actually it's followed by an exclamation mark. In the Hebrew, it's as if it needed to be emphasized, Woe to the bloody city. Might you and I take note in passing about the nature of that bloody city. We've listed some of the features and the nature of their shedding of innocent blood. But let us notice what that directly suggests as well. In order to be known for that kind of character, one would have to have a very low regard for the sanctity of life. 
to be able to just needlessly and perhaps with giving little thought to take the life of countless dozens or even thousands, one would have to have seemingly a rather low estate and a low respect for the nature and sanctity of life. Again, might we notice that human life is very special. In fact, inasmuch as God is the giver of life, do we not recall in Genesis 2-7 in which there on that very statement it is there said, God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living soul. And are we not told in Job 33-4 and Job 34-3 as well as Zechariah 12-1 and Hebrews 12-9 that it's God who in fact provides and gives man the spirit that's within him. That spirit that is you and me implies and suggests because that spirit was made in the image and likeness of God that that human life is exceedingly valuable, exceedingly special, and should be so regarded. When any people thus have a disdain for the sanctity of life and treat it as little, if anything at all, they too show within themselves the terrible disgust to which they have dropped and to which they have stooped. We notice that Nineveh, this bloody city, had, it seems, a great disdain for the proper value and respect for life. Doesn't that challenge us to appreciate even the nature of where we stand in our country and in our day? We see so often when lives seem to be needlessly taken in ways that are, in fact, shameful, disgusting, and ought not ever to be. And yet it seems in our land it's so very common, isn't it? Murders on every hand. The instances in which life seems to be snuffed out with so little regard or thought. It is to be noted that in times past, God has looked upon those who do, did such, just as he did Nineveh, with a great sense of ruin, destruction, punishment, and wrath. It is his desire for all of us to appreciate that which he has given in terms of human life. Even as early as Genesis 9 verse 6 we notice there that humans were not to commit murder. Now, in the very verses that followed it, they were given the permission by God to take lives of animals. You see, they're not the same. Human life is regarded and lifted highly in the prospect of eternity, lifted highly in the concourse of the Holy Scriptures. And may it never be mistaken that one of the greatest evils brought about by Darwin and his general theories of evolution, is the reduction and appreciation of the sanctity of human life. Anyone who would have the audacity to say that you and I are but glorified apes, gorillas, animals if you please, has in fact sought to remove the very instilled character and preponderance of goodness that God has instilled in the human frame. We are not animals, and in fact we ought never to so live as one. It is to be noted that in those matters, look at some of the other passages that command against murder. In Exodus chapter 20, in the Ten Commandments, God there said, Thou shalt not kill. The Hebrew word means, Thou shalt not murder. They were not with premeditation and cold-blooded character take the life of another. Later we notice that that text is quoted twice in the New Testament at least one of which in the Roman epistle, later in the Galatian letter, we find the character lifted high about the sanctity that should be appreciated with regard to life. I suppose that does challenge us to think about then some of those instances in which human life seems to be so readily taken. 
specifically, what about the life of the innocent? Perhaps we could think about those that are older in age. If all of us are blessed by God to live, all of us will come to that point in time at one juncture or another in life. And yet there are those who would almost now have a desire to legalize euthanasia. Let's put those older ones out of their misery. Society doesn't need them anymore. They cannot benefit society anymore. Let's allow them to pass on from this life and to do so, quote, humanely. Is it ever humane to purposefully take the life of another human being? Might we appreciate then that matters such as that one, and there are other countries upon, upon this world that do legalize that. Perhaps we can appreciate it might not be long before we have such legalization in our own country. Rather than the very old, what about the very young? Those who also haven't yet advanced to the point of being able to benefit and prosper and be successful citizens, can we not take their lives with a little thought after all? What is wrong in that, some would say? After all, is it not our right to make those judgments with regard to the purposeful production of a successful society? And isn't it a mother's right to choose what takes place with regard to the thing, so they tell us, that's within her? All that you and I can say to that, I'm sure, is to appreciate the magnitude of the murder that's involved in abortion. And yet in our land, of course, you know it's legal. We all know that it's legal and has been so now for almost 40 years. That doesn't change the fact that it's wrong. It doesn't change the fact that it is a degrading of the value and power of what life is all about from the human perspective and what God has instilled within it. I might invite you to notice with me some passing remarks in regard to one passage that those in our land who are in positions of authority should think about often. In the 24th chapter of 2 Kings, as you approach near the end of that book, I would invite you to read with me a statement that God has made relative to what took place in the days of the long ago concerning a nation and what she chose to deal in and how she chose to pursue and to produce that which was before her. 2 Kings 24, verses 1 through 4. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldees, and bands of the Syrians, and bands of the Moabites, and bands of the children of Ammon, and bands of the children... Uh, and sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by his servants the prophets. Surely at the commandment of the Lord came this upon Judah, to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he did. Let's pause there before we read the last verse. You'll notice that in this prophecy, in this statement, God says that the evil things, difficult things, punishing things are about to come upon Judah, his own people, for what took place in the reign of Manasseh. What sins he accomplished and brought about. What sins, I wonder. What kinds of things did Manasseh do? Verse 4. And also for the innocent blood that he shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood which the Lord would not pardon. Among the evils that Manasseh had wrought, among the things he not only had encouraged, but in fact brought forth amongst Israel was the slaying of the innocent, the taking of innocent blood. And God said, for that, amongst other things, 
destruction. Evil was to be brought upon Judah for her punishment. Where do you and I stand today in the good old United States of America? Oh, if our leaders would think purposefully and often about the sacred text of the Holy Scriptures to notice what God did then to those nations who destroyed the innocent. And yet today we destroy the innocent by the thousands each and every day by the nature of abortion. May we think soberly and may we return in haste as the pendulum swings toward a more godly character and we have an appreciation for all that is life the very young and the very old alike. You see, Nineveh helps to teach us about this same matter again. For isn't it true that the bloody city was known for the shedding of innocent blood? And perhaps we can keep in mind that America perhaps is also known for that same thing today. In addition to those things, notice what else we learn in this same text. In verse number 4 of Nahum chapter 3, another matter of her sins is set before us. Because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, the mistress of witchcrafts that selleth nations through her whoredoms, and families through her witchcrafts. Another thing that was rampant in Nineveh was the statement of what's described in this text before us. We shall not have the fullness of the time to look at all that's there, but I think there's plenty of opportunity for us to see and highlights some of the features of the evil that surrounded Nineveh. Because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot. That language, in, in fact, sounds so familiar, doesn't it? As we think about other passages where something similar is uttered and something similar is stated. We might begin with the word multitude. Nineveh's sins weren't just a small list, if you please. She was guilty of many things. Not only those things we had noted in verse 1, now there's a whole host of additional matters, and for these, God's wrath was going to come against Nineveh. The multitude of the whoredoms, that word directly reminds us of fornication. We see directly, immediately, and powerfully this indirect reference to this set of whoredoms of which Nineveh was guilty. As you think about the nature of whoredoms, fornication, sexual uncleanness, the living in such a way sexually opposed to the will and character and, and mind of God, we notice there's another reference to the same. Do you notice the well-favored harlot? In other words, this prostitute. We have here Nineveh is being called a prostitute. She's being called a person living far, far beneath the holy and sinless privileges with which she should have been arrayed. That, you see, is a way that the Holy Scriptures make reference in a figurative way to this evil kind of lifestyle that Nineveh had chose to live. Oh, it's true that some of it may well have been sexual impurity and sexual uncleanness. But the description is far larger and far broader than that. Just as it was for the case of Rome in the New Testament. We gave great license and great emphasis to Rome and her description when we arrived at Revelation 17, didn't we? In those two chapters, Revelation 17 and 18, Rome was called the great harlot. She was said to be guilty of fornication, and we learned that how was a city guilty of such? When she chose to prostitute her desires and lead others astray from what she herself was needing to be before God. 
She herself was guilty, and she led others to be the same. She was guilty of all manner of vileness, improprieties, uncleannesses by virtue of idolatry, sexual impurity, literally. We notice that many of those same descriptions are now found with regard to ancient Nineveh. She was a city known for her harlotry, apparently both figuratively and literally. That helps us to appreciate the importance of sexuality. And isn't it still true that our land makes a mockery of it in most instances? It is lifted up high in commercials and encouraged to do what you like with who you like and who is anybody else to question you. God will question us. Ought not we to know that His will dictates that there is sexual sin? The only license God has ever given to appreciate that enjoyment of sexuality, shall we say, is between a man and his wife. Not another man's wife, and not anybody other than his wife. It is to be observed that that was God's law from the very outset of time. One woman for one man for life. And even as much as in Eden God fashioned one woman for one man, and then the Lord married them, He forevermore set before us the pinnacle of the beauty that is that lovely union. As marriage is affirmed in that fashion, our Savior joined the chorus, didn't he? In Matthew 19, when he said, Whatsoever God hath joined together, let not man put us under. To quote Matthew 19, 6. And two verses earlier, he had asked the rhetorical question, Have you not read that at the beginning he which made them made them male and female? As he quoted from Genesis 2, verses 24 and 25. These matters you see set before us that the problems that have beset the human family, be it the United States of America today, Rome of the first century, or ancient Nineveh, seven centuries before Christ. Many of the problems have had a very similar ring, haven't they? Aren't we thankful that God has the answer in every case? Aren't we thankful that this book through all time has the proper and right and noble and godly way in which all men should live, be they those on the outskirts of the African desert, or be they in the southeastern United States in the 21st century. The Word of God is timeless in that regard. No wonder Rome needed it. And inasmuch as Paul took that opportunity to travel to Rome, finally in Acts, the 24th chapter and following, we find that when he arrived, he still preached the unsearchable riches of Christ. In Acts 28, we, we have a record of a part of the sermon he delivered on that occasion. We are reminded, are we not, about the character of the way in which the Word of God can search and penetrate the very nature of even the hardest of human hearts. When we think about Nineveh, we can see then some likenesses, I'm convinced, to where we are today in America and frightfully where we may be heading even more abundantly. Notice furthermore as we list some other things for which God was to punish this nation, he makes notice in verse number 4 of witchcraft. That is to say, sorcery. The literal Hebrew word that's employed there is sorcery. Any people, including ancient Nineveh, who think that they can find the answers of life in cards and the way in which bones and other things are strewn and scattered about, and who think that they can mystically discover and speak to the dead in ways of necromancy and otherwise, are sorely deluded and are sorely mistaken. 
Sadly enough, we might well notice that's prevalent today, just as it was then, but may we never forget that in Israel it was absolutely condemned. Witches were to be put to death, as we read in Exodus chapter 22. Later in the book of Deuteronomy, we one more time notice, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. You see, they had the opportunity to, in fact, afflict many with that kind of thinking, and it was not to be tolerated. Today, we should be then very careful to understand that there are ways in which people try to use the human mind to, in fact, deceive it, to lead it into ways to thinking that it can do things that God has forbade. May we be careful in understanding that whether it be things that are sometimes portrayed as innocent as horoscopes and otherwise, let us be on guard and understand our youth can be influenced by those things. And perhaps you and I, even as older ones, if we aren't careful, can do the same. Be it witchcraft, sorcery, or the other things described in verse number 4 of Nahum 3, we notice that this much is also stated. May we never lose sight that Nineveh selleth nations through her whoredoms. Among other things, God was holding Nineveh responsible because you have deceived others. You have had a role to play in the leading of others to error. You have had a role to play by your influence and by the way in which you have subjugated and conquered them and by what you taught amongst them, you have helped to lead them astray. I would suggest maybe that's the greatest of the spiritual lessons for us this evening, to ever be aware that God will hold us responsible for the example we have set before others. Have I been a stumbling block? to anybody? Have I been a rock that ultimately led them to refuse the things of truth? Did I set before them an example that was questionable, an example that was less than honorable, an example that caused in the very nature the truth of the Word of God? Isn't it still a sadness when you and I, perhaps in speaking to others, sometimes hear them say, as they talk about a congregation somewhere, well, those people are hypocrites. Those people, in fact, are such that they don't live according to what that book says. There are many things wrong with that kind of statement, not the least of which is the things about what it does say about maybe some of the lives there. Quite often, those who would make such statements do not know all the facts. They aren't aware of all that should be known before they cast a net over a judgment like that. But let us each strive to so live in such a way that others will have no cause to say anything like that, but that they will have a regard for what those people believe. They claim to be Christians, and they live to the best of their ability by virtue of the sacred text of the Word of God. If you and I can so honestly strive to live in that regard, the influence will be cast far and wide. Others will come to know just as they did the churches of the New Testament era. For do we not read in 1 Thessalonians 1 of a congregation, it says, The word was sounded out by them to the far distances of the Roman Empire. Paul made note, didn't he, that he didn't even need to talk about that church for their reputation was known far and wide to be wholesome, sound, and honorable. May the same be true of Pippin. May you and I have a name that in fact is lived so highly that others are aware of that for which we stand the truth that we strive to defend, and the Word of God that we seek to live each of us day by day. 
Nineveh had failed on that regard, hadn't they? And she was now shortly to meet her doom because of it. As we come near the closing point of our lesson this evening, we have looked at some of the statements to be seen there concerning Rome. Perhaps in finality, that leads us to notice these very brief examples. I mentioned in passing how that God would hold us responsible for that example that we set before others. And if we cause others to stumble, in fact, that was taught in the Old Testament. In Second Chronicles 33, one of the things there said of Manasseh, that same evil king we mentioned earlier, was he had a role to play and a hand in aiding and encouraging Jerusalem and Judah to sin. Because of that, we do notice very carefully that Manasseh left this world in his death in a very evil way. In closing this lesson this evening, I've listed just a few things that can be of encouragement, I hope, to all of us. Notice that some of the things that we can see as fathers, may all of us as fathers be bold and uncompromising in our leadership of our families, in our setting before all of our family members, be they wives, be they our children, of an example of uncompromising loyalty to the truth of God so that we can lead them in a way that they too, like Abraham, will be led in the way that they should go. Mothers, may all of you be challenged and charged to appreciate the great responsibility also given to you just as surely as you have such remarkable influence in tenderness and in the law that you set forth, Proverbs 1 verse 8. May that law be a wholesome and sound law that your children will see in you, the very earmark of loyalty, devotion, and truth to the things of God. Furthermore, may all of us appreciate that as young people, I know I'm privileged to speak to many within the sound of my voice this evening. I will remember and will understand for your situation that there are many things brought against you. You're asked to do many things for the sake of just maintaining a sense of peace. Others will bother and insult you when you don't do what they want you to do. Be strong. Recognize you have parents, hopefully, who in themselves are very strong and will support you. And furthermore, realize you have a God who loves you and who wants you to be loyal to Him, for He will make it all worthwhile. May we always remember, I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that should be revealed in us, to quote Romans 8.18. Thus, perhaps finally, what about all of us as Christians? Let's take the mantle of us and not be like those of Nineveh who have forgotten where they once were. May we remember where we have been. May we know what the life of sin is like and ever turn our backs to it. May we live devotedly to the Lord. May we open His Word frequently and often, and may we allow its words to direct our paths. May we pray to Him frequently for the sustenance and help and provision that we need. And may we allow our life to be an open example before all those about us. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The famous words of Matthew 5, verse 16. As you think about those matters tonight, I would close the lesson by asking us to reflect a little bit longer upon Nineveh. It's a rather sad saga, isn't it, the book of Nahum? I recognize some of the minor prophets have more a negative message than a, than a positive one. But may we always notice that the Bible simply tells the truth. 
you and I noticed that it was the truth that Nineveh lived the way she did. Sorrowful that it was, but it was still the truth. We've noticed some things about America tonight that aren't very good, but it's the truth. And may we notice that some things in our life may need to be changed as well. Friend, that's the truth. You see, we need negative preaching and negative scriptures just as often as we need the positive ones. In fact, it takes the negative to accentuate the positive. It takes the negative to remind us of how sordid and ugly that kind of living is. And perhaps as an easy example, you and I would have a hard time starting our car if that battery didn't have a negative terminal. It takes the negative and the positive in order to lead to the current to flow. You and I need these warnings of the negative scriptures of God so that we can be aware of what He did to them and what He will do to us if we fail to turn our lives around and do that which we should. Tonight then, what about you being a Christian? Are you a member of the blood-bought body of Christ? Have you allowed your sins to be washed away in baptism, Acts twenty-two sixteen? Have you relinquished control of your life to the Lord? We read in Acts 10, verse 36. This very night, if you're not a Christian, realize that the plan of salvation that leads to you becoming a Christian has been set forth now for 20 centuries. Inasmuch as we read it like this, you must hear the word of the Lord. Did not Jeremiah the long ago say, O oh, earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord? Jeremiah twenty-two twenty-nine. Tonight you have heard a portion of the word of God. Believe it fully to be that which God sent it forth to be. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. In that belief, you'll be fulfilling what the Lord said in Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Following that belief, repent of the sins in your life. They, in fact, are the very things that are transgressions of God's will. Repent of the meaning, make a turn in mind such that no longer do you strive to do them but you turn in mind to realize how evil they were. In addition to that repentance, be, then confess the sweet name of Jesus and, and then be baptized. If we could assist in that way, or in rededication of your, of your life to that which God would have it to be, we'd be honored to pray with you and for you. If either of those things would be the need of your life tonight, won't you let that be known in a public way while together we stand and while we sing.